As you know, we had quite the storm. This, the nor'easter came through this past week. If you're new to Boston, sorry about that. <laughs> kind of a rough uh, welcome to the city. Uh, we'll have some more of those this winter. But actually, I honestly think a nor'easter with snow is better than a nor'easter with rain. I mean, the snow you can brush off, the, the rain you cannot. But, but as you know, the, the storm came, the winds you know, blowing down uh, limbs from trees, uh, trees falling. I had a friend over in Boston whose car was crushed by falling tree, and then as a result, you know, hundreds of thousands of people for a time were without power. And in some ways, the storm of one piece leading to another piece, leading to more destruction, felt a lot like the last couple of years, where there's been one thing after another. So many difficulties from suffering to disease, death, economic and cultural struggles, injustice, fear, so much loss that so many have endured. In light of the storm that we found ourselves in, we wonder where can we turn for hope and for help? And a related question in the midst of a storm like that is to, is to wonder, is it best to simply go it alone? When things are so hard, should I just look out for myself, kind of pull back from others, and do what I can for myself? Or do we dare, in the midst of a storm, turn to others? Is it wise to turn to others? And if so, who do we turn to? And that's what we're going to explore together today. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you today to turn to the book of 1 Peter, to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1, and the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 1016. Page 1016, if you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 5, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And so I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time together today. If you don't own a copy of the Bible for yourself, we as a church would love to give you one. There's a table at the back of the room on your way out. You can just grab one of those Bibles. You don't have to ask anybody. Please do take one of those with you. We've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew this fall, so we're, we're pausing our series now, and, and Lord willing, we'll pick it up in January uh, with a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're starting today a new series, a six-week series that we're calling Together, the Life of the Church, where over these six weeks, we'll look at different aspects of, of what God intends His church to be. And so we start this week with 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood 
throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This morning, as we look to our passage, we'll see this main focus. God's good design is for humble shepherds to care for a humble flock as they watch for the enemy and endure suffering together. God's good design is for humble shepherds to care for a humble flock as they watch for the enemy and endure suffering together. And we'll look at our passage in three parts. First, we'll see humble shepherds. Second, a humble flock. And then third, humble pursuits. So first, we see humble shepherds. The beginning of this letter, 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, tells us who he initially wrote this letter to, to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And across this letter, if you were to begin in 1 Peter, you see that Peter addresses a number of topics across these chapters, and then in chapter 5, he turns and for a few verses addresses a subset in the congregation. And so he speaks, verse 1, to the elders among you. In the New Testament, we see that God's design is for the local church to have two primary offices, we call them, or roles. And that is the role of elders and deacons. Now, the role of elder is not new, as, as, as if Christianity completed it. Many societies, perhaps most societies, have at least an informal role of elders. Like there might be elders in, in a tribe who are the older men in the congregation or in the tribe. So, for instance, my wife Brandy's uh, Osage Native American tribe. There will be elders in that tribe who are understood to have wisdom with age. So this isn't new, but it does shift a little bit in the New Testament, where now being an elder is a formal role, and it's not simply or even primarily based upon age. Instead, it's based upon some qualifications, a maturity of faith, a character, and an ability to teach the Word of God. We also see a shift, when we think about from from the way that God's people, the Jewish people, were, were cared for as we transition after Jesus. So before Jesus, among God's people, they were led by priests. There was a high priest and priests who were under them. But now in the New Testament, we see this role of priest goes away. And that's because, one, Jesus Christ came as the perfect high priest. He was the high priest of high priests. No other priests were necessary. And we see in this same letter that the Apostle Peter said that now all Christians are part of a royal priesthood. Meaning there's a way that we're all priests because we all have direct, direct access to God through Christ. So in the New Testament now, there's not a role of priest, but there is this role of elder and deacon. So in the church, the role of elders is given, and we see multiple words used for that. Sometimes we have the word elder used, sometimes the word shepherd is used, which is where we get the word pastor, or sometimes the word uh, overseer is used, where we get the word bishop. And in our text, all three of those words are used today. And we see in the New Testament that God's design is for each congregation, each local congregation, to have some of these elders. And it's God's design that there would always be multiple, a plurality of them. The New Testament never gives a specific number, 
But it's clear there shouldn't be only one, but a group of them in a local church. Now, in this plurality, we see the pattern in the New Testament as well, that some of them might be paid by the congregation. The congregation might say, we want to pay this person, so they are freed to do more of the ministry, and then others of them would be volunteers. So this is the pattern that we follow here at Hope. So here at Hope, we have five elders currently. If you were curious who they are, you can turn over your worship guide, and on the back, you'll see them all listed. And we currently have one paid elder, that's me, and then we have four who are volunteers. Now, as I mentioned, the term elder and pastor refer to the same office. So some churches use the term elders for all of them, which is absolutely appropriate and biblical. Others use the term pastor for all of them. And so both of those would be true. If you wanted to refer to all five from our church as elders, that's accurate. If you wanted to call all five of them pastors, that would also be accurate. We tend to, to mainly use the term pastors here uh, for those who are paid by the church, and we more often refer to the, the unpaid elders as elders, mainly because that tends to be uh, more understandable the average person in our community. Many in our community wouldn't know, if they don't attend church, what an elder is, but if I said I'm a pastor of a church, it's just a category that makes more sense to them. But the terms are absolutely interchangeable. Now in our text, notice that Peter speaks to the elders among you, meaning he's writing that there will be elders among each and every one of those congregations. There's not one set of elders who are over all those churches that Peter mentions, but in each one of the congregations. In the same way, I'm an elder of Hope Fellowship Church, but I'm not an elder of all the churches in Greater Boston. Or for instance, last week, Brandy and I went to New Jersey for John, our associate, former associate pastor, was being installed at his new church. And so I went there to preach for them, but I was not an elder of their church. And I could be, a, I guess, preacher, but I'm not an elder there. And so it is, the picture here, that there are elders among or within each and every congregation. They might wonder, well, then, how do we get elders here at Hope? And that is through a process by which the current elders nominate to the members, and the members vote. And the members would need to vote in or affirm a person to serve as an elder. If you remember, you recall that at our next meeting, November the 21st, we, we have a young man who's been nominated to that, and we will vote on that as members. And we also understand that though these elders have authority, the ultimate human authority in the church is actually the congregation, the members together. So the members do vote to, to call some as elders, and they delegate authority to those elders, but the final authority is the membership of the church. Now then in our text today, we see some of what elders are to do. It's by no means an exhaustive text, a couple of other passages that are helpful, particularly when it comes to qualifications for elders. If you want to read more, you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 or to Titus 1. But here's the, the, the work that elders are called to. Look at verse 2. Here's what he says. Shepherd the flock among you. This is what elders are to do. Shepherd the flock. If you look like what, which is a very brief description of what it means to be a pastor or an elder, I think this is better than any other. This is what we do. Shepherd the flock. Now, what does the shepherding the flock include? It's, it's multifaceted. So it includes one, it includes protection. The elders are to watch out for false teaching. They're to watch out for, for what might 
undermine or destroy unity. The elders are also to feed the flock. That's what shepherding includes. So this would happen through steadily doing that, for instance, on a weekly basis like this, where an elder would preach to the congregation, but not only here. As elders might might teach in in an equipping class, they might meet with someone one-on-one and encourage them through the scriptures. Another aspect of shepherding the flock is also caring for the flock. It might be in a, a brief, very acute time. It might be across a significant time of suffering. But the elders are to care for and to coordinate care for those who are in the flock. And another aspect is leading. There is an oversight role. The congregation delegates oversight to the elders. And then our passage turns to not only the role shepherding, but how they are to shepherd. It's not enough for elders to shepherd, but it matters how we do that, how we go about that. So we see verse 2. This is to be done willingly, not under compulsion. So for, for myself, for our current elders, for future elders, we are to serve the church with great effort. And sometimes giving many hours, but we must do so willingly. Not as if we're somehow forced to do this. And friends, I hope you're thankful, especially for the volunteer elders of our church who already have busy lives and full-time jobs, and they spend many late, late nights. The last couple of months, we've had very extra late nights. I hope you're thankful for them, that you'll express that to them as you have the opportunity. Willingly, not under compulsion, but also eagerly, not for shameful gain. So to elders, we're to shepherd the flock with an eagerness through through even the often difficult, complex, sometimes exhausting work of shepherding. We should do it eagerly. And those who are paid by the church must be alert to not do it for shameful gain, to guard our hearts from, from envy and from greed, to be eager and joyful as we serve. And then he goes on to say, as examples, not domineering. The elders must be careful not to be domineering over the flock, even as they carry out oversight. There is a right authority, but it must be carefully applied. And these elders, though imperfect they are, must live as examples before the flock. So that someone in the flock could look to them, to seek to follow them as they follow Christ. And what is it that is to motivate and empower this life of the elder? It is the the perfect work of the chief shepherd. So elders are to shepherd the flock, but to follow the chief shepherd, the perfect shepherd. And Peter writes of this chief shepherd earlier in this letter. So you have a Bible. Turn with me just a page back to 1 Peter 2. Look at 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse uh, 2, verse 21 and following. Peter says this, For to this you've been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
if you were just reading through 1 Peter, and you read straight through from chapter 1 through chapter 5, you would hear echoes in chapter 5 from chapter 2, because you see these same words, shepherd, shepherd, overseer, overseer. So it's the same thrust from beginning to end. And here we see Jesus Christ, the perfect shepherd, the chief shepherd, who came to lay down his life for the sheep. This shepherd did not ask the sheep to die for him. Instead, he willingly, gladly, purposefully died in their place. As the text says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And friend, do you notice how he described what we were doing? He says, we were straying like wandering sheep. We were wandering far from God. We did not find our way to him, but the shepherd came to seek and to save. The shepherd came looking for you, friend. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we so want you to know this chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. That there is no other shepherd like him. And what this says about us, I wonder if you've recognized in your own experience of this wandering, straying. Perhaps in life you've been looking for answers. You've been looking for satisfaction. You've been looking for joy and finding every path eventually wanting. And friends, we'd say that's true because every path ultimately can't satisfy. But the chief shepherd has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to pursue sinners like us, to die for sinners like us, and to be raised triumphant, to provide life for us, freedom for us. This is new to you. We'd love to tell you more about this. So I'll be at the door following the service. We'd love to chat with you. Uh, if you came with a friend or a family member, if they're a Christian, they would love to tell you more. Maybe you're not quite ready to talk with someone. We would just welcome you to join us next week and continue to hear more about who this Jesus is. You can also note it on your connection card if you have questions or you'd like to know more. And friends, for those who are Christians, remember this is who your Savior is. This is where you once were. We were all wandering far from him, but he has come to rescue us. And by his wounds, we have been healed at the deepest level of our struggles, at the deepest disease of sin. We've been healed in Christ. And now we're empowered by that grace. The grace of our shepherd now empowers us. And so our elders are to shepherd under the chief shepherd, and they're also to shepherd in light of his returning. As we see in verse 4, when the chief shepherd returns, he, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here, friends, there is hope for the elders, but there's also accountability. Elders should be sober in their work because the chief shepherd will return. And we'll be held accountable for what we did and didn't do as shepherds of the flock. So as elders, we want to carefully, faithfully give ourselves in this that we might be humble shepherds of the flock. But then second in our text, we move from the shepherds to the flock, and we see the humble flock. Peter tells them in verse 2, the elders among you to shepherd the flock among you. Now who is in this flock then? This is those who've been joined to the flock of God, those who've been joined to this congregation, the local church. This is God's good design for the health of each and every Christian to be united with, in a covenant with, other believers in a local congregation, in a flock. 
It's clearly implied here and across the New Testament that that every sheep is, is to be connected to others, that there's great danger in living in isolation. If you think about a a flock of actual sheep, if a sheep wanders alone, it's in great danger. Maybe not immediately, but in time. And so often, particularly I think Christians in America, we have this idea that we don't need anyone else. So you say, well, I have the Bible, I have podcasts, even in the world we live in today, so many services and things that we can watch online, and we convince ourselves that that's sufficient. And certainly COVID has just contributed all the more as we've been isolated in so many ways. But friends, the New Testament is clear. We all have need for a flock. Every one of us needs a flock. There's a life of full engagement in the flock that God desires for his people in the church. And we'll we'll look at that across this series in the coming weeks. And so friend, if you are a Christian, let me encourage you, if you're not a member of a local church, to find a local church and to put down roots and join that church for your own care. And because you've been gifted, there's a place of service for you in a local church as well. So we'd love to have you here, but if not here, we'd love to help you find a church. So if you have questions that we could help you find a church, we would love to do that. If you're curious, perhaps church membership is new to you or just new to Hope, we have a membership class coming up Friday, November the 12th. It's at 6 o'clock. We just talk about what does it mean to be a church member? What do we believe as a church? How do we function? It's a place to ask any questions that you have. So that's coming up. You might take note of that. Now, how are the members of the flock to respond? Look at verse 5. Back in chapter 5, verse 5, he says, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, the question then comes, well, who are the younger here? And this could be referring simply to age. And it's certainly often the case, as it was for me when I was younger. Uh, I, you know, I was less apt to follow when I was younger. So it, it could be that he's speaking simply to those who are younger in age. He also could be pointing to those who are, who are not elders. And certainly true as well, biblically, that they also are to, to place themselves under the elders. And then we have instructions. He moves to instructions for all who are in the flock in verse 5. And look at what he says. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So this is for all, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility. So we have a call for humility for every elder and every single member of the church. Why? Notice what he says. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The first part of this statement should be daunting to us. God opposes the proud. Friends, we don't want to find ourselves living in opposition to God. God opposes us. But when I am embracing and walking in pride instead of humility, I'll find God opposed to me in that pride. But notice the hope and the promise. The second part is this, but he gives grace to the humble. God always freely gives grace to the humble. It's a beautiful, hopeful promise. For if we, if we know ourselves, we, we know that we all struggle with pride. But if I even begin to take a, a half step towards humility, God will give me grace for that. If you've been eaten up for, by pride in the last month, but tomorrow morning you said, I, I just want to move in a, one degree towards humility, friend, God will give you grace for that. He will always give grace to all of his people anytime we want to grow in humility. 
And humility is certainly valuable in every sphere of life, in the workplace, on campus. But we should notice a particular context here. He's not saying this is the only place where we are to be humble, but notice here he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So here he's speaking primarily of humility within the family of God, within the local church. So this is every member of the church seeking to cultivate humility towards the other. Now the good news is God has graciously given the perfect example in Jesus Christ. There's never been anyone as humble as Christ who humbled himself, taking on flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he's given us the perfect example and now empowers us by the Spirit to follow the example of Jesus. And notice the way that Peter says it. He says, clothe yourselves. So this humility is not a once-for-all transformation. There are aspects of the Christian life that are once-for-all, momentary. So, for instance, when we repent and believe in Christ, salvation happens in that very moment. We, we are saved. We are given new life. We are forgiven of sins. But then many aspects of the Christian life happen moment by moment the rest of our lives. And so one of those is growing in humility. So we aren't fully humble in one moment, never to face it again. But instead, it's the picture of just like you clothe yourself each day. That's a good thing. We clothe ourselves each day, so we have to clothe ourselves with humility. The temptation is not to put on humility, but each day we face a choice. Will I choose to clothe myself today in humility? And it's hard. It's hard in the life of the local church because we all have preferences. We all have opinions. The flock of God is filled with fellow strugglers. Though we're, we're saved by grace, we still struggle with sin. So we must choose day by day to put on humility. So if we're to say, is there to be a dress code in the church? Yeah, this is it. So you, you can wear a coat and tie, you can wear shorts, but we must all do, put on humility. Clothe ourselves in humility. So it will be helped if we consider, maybe ask ourselves these questions. How can I serve others in the flock of my church? How could I this week put someone else's interests above my own? How could I honor other members of the flock? Where have I perhaps been holding on to some of my own preferences and I could give them up for the preferences of another? And one of the ways we humble ourselves each week together is in a time like this. If you think about what we're doing in these moments, this is really strange in our culture. To slow down, sit down, and listen. It's because we understand what God does through his word. So we want to be a humble church that says we're eager to hear God's word, trusting that God works through his word by the spirit. And so friends, this is God's good design. A humble flock led by humble shepherds telling together a beautiful story. I mean, the world that we live in, the city that we live in, leaders are regularly arrogant and overbearing. And most who are under those leaders resist their leadership. But friends, a church marked by faithful, servant-hearted, humble elders and a joyfully trusting, humble congregation would truly be a light in our community. 
That's our desire. That's God's desire for us. A humble flock. And then third, we see some humble pursuits. So some practices for this humble flock to engage in. First, we see the pursuit of humble praying. Humble praying. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Peter says, humble yourself. And one of the primary ways you do this is by casting your anxieties on God. Peter's saying there's a close connection between humbling and casting. Here he's not saying two different things. He's saying humble yourself by casting your anxieties on him. And we do this through what we call praying. When we're praying, we're casting our cares, our anxieties on God. But what does it mean to cast your anxieties on God? If you've ever been fishing with a fishing pole, or at least you've seen it happen, you know, the fisherman stands there and they they cast the bait. And then they reel it back in. And they cast the bait. And you reel it back in. So when they cast it, they don't actually want the, the bait to go away. They want to bring it back. So you cast it and you bring it back. Some might say, well, is that what this means? And and if we really think about it, that's often what we do in our prayers. We cast it to the Lord, and we bring it back. I'm anxious, I cast it, I bring it back, I'm anxious again. I cast it, and I bring it back. That's not what this casting is. What this casting is, actually, had you been here maybe 30 minutes ago and just stood out and watched the playground. So all these kids were in the first service, They were wearing coats because it was cooler this morning. And they go outside and they're running around. And you know what eventually every kid does? It's hot. They take off their coat and they cast it away. They might cast it to mom or dad. They probably just cast it aside. But they will never even remember they brought a coat. They don't care where their coat is. And unless mom or dad goes and gets it, they will lose their coat. But they're they're not throwing it and reeling it back in. They've, They've thrown it away never to go back. Friends, that's what this casting is. That's what God is calling us to do. Not to throw it like that or reel it back in, but to cast these cares on him, to let them go, to throw them over on him. That's what God himself is asking us to do. And notice we cast our very real concerns. All of us have them. Struggles with health, relationships, Perhaps the desire for the salvation of a family member or friend who for years has shown no interest in Christ. Struggles in marriage, financial difficulties, the need for a job, situations with your children or the desire for children, loneliness, difficulties in faith, so many other concerns that we have and we are to take those and cast them on him. And why are we to cast them on him? Look at verse 7. Because he cares for you. What good news is that? God says, cast them on me because I care for you. We have a great and gracious God who is almighty and he cares about you. He's powerful and he loves us and he wants us to cast our deepest concerns, our greatest worries, our deepest fears on him. 
And when we do that, we're humbling ourselves. We're saying, I can't do this. I can't fix this. I don't know the answer. So I cast it on the Lord. And we're so often helped if we're humble enough to not only cast it on the Lord, but ask others to also cast it on the Lord with us. And just great wisdom as Christians to say to another Christian, would you pray with me about this? Would you also help me cast this worry on the Lord? God's people are to be a humble, praying people. We do it as we gather like we do this morning. There have been multiple prayers already. So what do we do when we're gathered like this and someone is praying up here? We're not to simply listen to the prayer. We do listen along, but in our hearts, we're, we're agreeing with that. And sometimes it's helpful even at the end of the prayer when, when, when I say amen, for instance, you just say amen as well because we're saying, yes, that's what we are praying. We gather also the first Sunday night of the month at 5 o'clock. We have a first Sunday gathering, and one of the things we do in that is we pray together. There, cast one another's burdens on the Lord. So someone says, I need a job. Would you pray for me? I have a very real health concern. Would you pray for me? I'm trying to share the gospel with a coworker. Would you pray for me in that situation? We do it in community groups. So we gather each week and we share those burdens. And friends, it's one of the points of the connection card. There may be things that are confidential. You could mark that. But I would love to pray for you this week. If you could write it on there in just a moment, we'll see the offering. You could just drop those cards in the basket. We want to be humble in our praying. We also want to humbly watch and resist the enemy. We see this in verse 8 and 9. We're to be sober-minded, to be alert, to be watchful. And why? He says, because there's a real and dangerous enemy who wants to destroy us. So the image of there's one who's the enemy, the lion, and we are sheep. And who is this enemy? It is Satan himself. The enemy who's opposed to all things that are of God and is opposed to all the people of God. So the devil prowls around as a lion wanting to destroy every Christian. And so in light of that, we're to be humble and wise. We're sheep. He's a lion. So therefore, we're in great danger. So where is the safest place for the sheep? It's in the flock with the shepherds. What's the most dangerous place? It is walking alone. It's it's the sheep that's wandered to the edge or beyond the flock who's in greatest danger. And friends, so often in our pride, we think, I'm strong enough, I I don't need a church. I'm strong enough, I, I don't need a flock, I don't need elders. In fact, it just kind of slows things down and complicates them. I'm just going to go it alone. But friends, it is unwise and so very dangerous. You may survive for a time. That's certainly true. But in time, it's devastating and dangerous for your soul. And this wandering from the flock is typically very gradual. It's not typical that a Christian just says, you know, today I want to wander away and shipwreck my faith. That's not usually how it works. But it's a slow, creeping wandering. Often it's the circumstances of life, perhaps a really busy season of life. So some personal struggles that come along. Maybe a level of frustration with others in the church. 
Maybe say, we moved to a new place. It's just hard and complicated to find a new church. We just never get around to doing that. Friends, the lion is happy for us to wander if he never has to bother us. Like, if we'll wander off without him attacking, he's fine with that too. And often we find ourselves wandering further and further away. So I wonder, friend, have you been trying to go it alone? This past year has been difficult with COVID. We live in an incredibly busy city. Some of you are new to the city. Just let me urge you, don't try to go it alone. If you've begun to wander, let me urge you to reconnect with the flock. A couple of years ago, we were in Nepal, and we were there to train some pastors. And so we went to visit one particular people group, the Chapong, who live in a jungle. And so we drove for many hours. We finally stopped. And they said, we've got to walk the rest of the way. Sounds fine. So we're walking through this jungle. But as we talk a little bit more, it becomes clear there are tigers in this jungle. In fact, there have been people killed by tigers in this jungle. And I begin to think, well, what are we doing? Like, I, I have no big stick. Uh, you know, can I outrun this person? I, I begin to think, like, you know, what's... <laughs> What are the odds here? But I can assure you, I did not say, I'm on my own, guys. I'll see you later. I was like, I I don't know how well we can survive together, but I'm at least going to stick together. We're going to stay close to each other for our own safety. And so it is for God's people. We need the flock. And there together, we're watching for one another. We see a brother or sister start to wander. We we try to help bring them back. We see the enemy try to destroy. We're going to try to intervene. We need the flock. So we want to be alert together. We also join in humble resistance in faith, verse 9 and 10. We humbly continue to place our faith in the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. So we continue in faith, continue to resist. And we're helped by others in the flock when there's a season that you're weak in the faith, a brother and sister is strong for you. And there will be a season later when you are strong in the faith and they're weak. And you are strong for them. That's why we need the flock. Others who come alongside and when when they have barely enough faith to keep going, you say, I'll help you along. And they will do the same for you in the years to come. We're firm together in faith even as our faith sometimes struggles. And we're mindful as we struggle that we're not alone in the struggles. Look at verse 9. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he says, you're not alone in this struggle. We're not alone in the struggle in our world today. We're not alone in our struggles in history. So friends, when we face difficulties and struggles as we have, we're in good company with Christians around the world and throughout the history of the church. This has been a difficult time, but we're not alone. If you read just this letter of 1 Peter, the verses just before chapter 5, he's talking about the suffering of God's people. In this chapter, he's talking about the sufferings of God's people. So we're not alone. This is not unusual. And so it comes to the last practice, and that is to humbly trust and wait together. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
So we can be sure that there is suffering and difficulty in this life, but it will come to an end. He says, after you've suffered for a little while. This doesn't mean the suffering is necessarily ending in this life. The little while might be our entire life. But in the grand scheme of eternity, it will seem like a little while. But it will come to an end. That's the promise. The God of grace will enable us to persevere, and he will bring it to an end, and God will finish what he has started. And Christ himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. But if you're a Christian, this is God's promise for you. God will enable you to persevere through this life. He will keep you to the end. So we take much hope in this. We don't despair in the difficulty. We endure by faith because our God is always faithful to his people. Friends, we do live in difficult times. A pandemic, economic challenges, cultural upheaval, and so much more. But we're not alone and this is not new. God has provided a way for us to persevere. He's provided a way for us to shine brightly in this storm. That by living together as a humble flock with humble shepherds, pursuing this path for our good, for the good of our city, and for the glory of God. Now today as a means of response, there are several ways to respond. One of those is the connection card on the back of the card. There might be something you want to know more about, or maybe there's a way that we could pray for you. You can note that on there. Just a moment, we'll receive the offering. We're going to bow our heads now for a time of silent praying. Right where you are, you can just pray. And then I'll lead us in praying together, and then we'll sing as a means of response. Let's bow our heads together.